Before I get to the text today in Luke chapter 2, I want to read a verse to you from Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, and this is from the New American Standard Bible, it says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The New International Version reads this way, that same verse. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, when the time was right, when all of the pieces of the puzzle were in place, God sent his only begotten son. I remember studying this as a college student years ago. And so this last week I dusted off one of my college textbooks and I looked back to see what factors might have helped this time in history be the right time for the Messiah to come. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but according to what I was reading, there were five factors that helped this time to be the right time for the Messiah. And the first thing that I read about was this. There was a universal language at this time in history. Or we might could say it this way. There was a common language at this time in history. Thanks to Alexander the Great conquering the world, or at least the the known world in the 3rd century B.C., the Greek language was the common language that was spoken across the empire. And this common language provided a way for the good news of Jesus Christ to spread more rapidly. It, in fact, helped people of every ethnic group to be able to communicate with each other. And that fact alone helped prepare the way for the Messiah. Secondly, and this goes hand in hand with what I've just said, the Old Testament scriptures were translated into the Greek language. This particular translation was called the Septuagint version and was translated somewhere between two and three hundred years before Jesus was born. The word Septuagint simply means 70. And it's called by that name simply because 70 Jewish scholars worked together to complete this translation of Scripture. And again, this helped the Word of God become more understandable to the masses. And actually, it is what most of the New Testament writers quoted from when they were quoting the Old Testament prophecies. And so, the Septuagint version helped prepare the way for the Messiah. A third factor that helped make the time right for the Messiah was the synagogue. Jews had been dispersed across the empire and many of them were far enough away from the temple in Jerusalem that they could not easily return there for worship. And so the synagogue became a center for Jewish worship across the empire and most towns or cities that had a Jewish population in them had a synagogue. And in the synagogue, the reading of scripture was habitually practiced every day, every week. And also the word of God was taught. One of my professors from Ozark Christian College, his name was Seth Wilson, wrote this about the synagogue. And I quote, the synagogue everywhere became the great missionary institute imparting to the world Israel's exalted messianic hopes. 
Then after the gospel of Christ was given, synagogues became key places to begin its proclamation and they furnished prepared persons for leadership and oversight in the New Testament church. To put that in simple English language, he was saying this, the synagogue was a place that God used to draw people to himself and to get his message of truth out to them. There was a fourth factor that helped make the time right for the Messiah. And that was the empire of Rome. Let me again quote to you from Seth Wilson in his book, Learning from Jesus. He said this, Rome made of the world one empire. And Roman roads made all parts of it accessible, while Roman stress on law and order made a comparatively high degree of peace and safety, which encouraged travel and communication. So what he's saying is this. The Roman Empire had such an elaborate transportation system, the roads were in such good shape that it it encouraged transportation to be free and to be uh, places accessible. And there was peace going on in this time. And all of that together helped prepare the way for the Messiah to come. It's interesting to me how God can use a heathen empire to prepare the way for the of the world for the for the Messiah to come. And I might mention too that the Jewish people were weary of Rome's thumb being upon them. They had very high hopes that the Messiah would come and free them from Rome's oppression. This hope, this anticipation for the Messiah spread like wildfire. People were looking for the Messiah. They expected Him to come soon. But they had certain expectations of what the Messiah was to be. He was to be a military leader. He was to free them from Rome's oppression. And that's what they were looking for. And when Jesus came, the actual Messiah, and He didn't measure up to their expectations, then they killed Him. You see, the Messiah was not coming to free the Jews from Roman oppression. He was coming to free them from their sin. I'll give to you one other factor that helped prepare the way for the Messiah. 400 years of silence. You know what I'm talking about? It had been that long since God had last spoken to his people through the prophet Malachi. 400 years is a long time to go without hearing from God. And the people were hungry for His voice. They could read in their scriptures about how God used to speak to their ancestors and and He interacted with them. He led them. And they longed for that to be true for them as well. This silence was deafening. They were indeed ready for the Messiah to come. It really was the right time for the Messiah to come, for God to send His Son. And that is exactly what He did. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. 
Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Again, I find it interesting to see how God can use a heathen empire to accomplish his will. You remember the prophet Micah had said that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem? Well, how was God going to get Mary, who was nine months pregnant, to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that she could deliver her baby in the right place? Bethlehem was 70 miles away. And she didn't have a Lincoln or a Cadillac to give her a smooth ride down there. She, could, she had really one of three options to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. She could walk there, or she could ride a donkey, or maybe if, if a wagon was accessible to them, if she or, or Joseph had access to a wagon, then, then she could ride the wagon. But, but in my mind, of those three options, not one of them is a very good option for a woman who is nine months pregnant to travel 70 miles. And so how was God going to get her to Bethlehem? Simple. He prompted Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire, to call for a census to be taken of all of the inhabited earth. Each one registering for the census was to go to his own city. In other words, he was to go to the city of his ancestors. And for Joseph, that was the city of Bethlehem. He had no choice in the matter. The king, Caesar, said, go now. And Joseph had to obey. And Mary went with him. And it should come as no surprise to us that this journey of 70 miles, once she was finished with it, she was ready to have her baby. She was induced to deliver this baby that she was carrying. I want to read on to you from Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It's not exactly what you would figure for a royal birth. Is it? If you want to see what a royal birth looks like, just watch what happens in England. Dusty, if you remember last week as he was preaching, he showed a picture to you on the screen of Prince William and his wife Kate, who is now pregnant. They will show you what a royal birth really looks like. Just watch and see. All kinds of fanfare, bright lights. Cameras will be rolling. Pictures will be taken. The finest medical care will be given. A very plush bed will be provided for the mom and the baby. Celebrities will be present. Nothing but the best for the royal family. But Jesus had none of that. 
And that's really okay. The humble birth was all a part of God's plan. He, Jesus, left royalty behind to come here and dwell among us. His humble birth was a foreshadowing of the kind of life that he would live. He didn't come just to save royal people. He came to save all people. And yet the text says that there was no room for them in the end. And lots of people still today have no room for him. A few weeks ago, I got a real sense of what it feels like to be somewhere where there is no room for you. I was at KU Med Center to see a patient who was there in the ICU. This patient was one of the members of our church, Irving Fink. I picked up the phone on the wall and dialed the nurse's station to ask permission to come in to the ICU. The the doors were locked and you have to do that to get in. I talked to the nurse. I said, I'm Irving Fink's pastor. I would like to see him. Would that be okay? And she said, yes. And she said, come in. And she, inside, pushed a button and the automatic doors opened wide and I walked in. And just a little bit to the left was the ICU unit, or the first ICU. I didn't know there were two. And so I walked in, and the nurse was there, and I said, I'm looking for Irving Fink. And she said, oh, he's not in this unit. He's down the hallway in the second unit. And she, she, she then gave me directions on how to get there. She said, go around the corner and down the hallway... And to your left, you'll see the second unit. I said, okay, thank you. And I left and I went around the corner and down the hallway. What I didn't realize, though, there was a second hallway that went in a different direction. And that was actually the hallway that I needed to go. You see, as I rounded the corner, somebody had hit the button for the automatic doors to open that led into the operating room at KU Med Center. And and the doors were standing wide open, and there was a hallway, and it looked exactly to be the direction that I had been given by the nurse. And had the doors been closed, I would have seen this huge stop sign that said, Stop, do not enter. But the doors were standing open. And so I just traced right on through. And I got deep into the operating room before somebody came walking out into the hallway and they saw me there and they hollered at me. It was a guy. He said, sir, what are you doing in here? This is the operating room. You're not supposed to be in here. This is a sterile area. And he commenced to usher me out in a hurry. I was just glad he didn't throw me out and call the police. They had no room for me there. (laughs) And there are many people today who have no room for Jesus. They are off limits to him. They have a sign posted that says, stop, do not enter. Oh, they have room for what they want. But they have no room for Jesus. And how sad. 
because they don't know what they're missing. And we need to show them what they are missing, and we need to tell them what they are missing. I don't know if last Sunday night you were at Memorial Hall, but if you were, you got to hear Adam LaRoche give a testimony that I especially appreciated. He was saying that it took him a long time to discover the importance of having Jesus in his life. And he was referring back to his growing up years here in Fort Scott. He said he tried all kinds of avenues, hoping to find pleasure, hoping to find fulfillment. And he said these were things that that the world had promised would bring fulfillment to him. But it was all a dead-end street, he said. He went on to say the only thing that he found that would bring him true pleasure and true fulfillment is when he decided to make room in his heart For Jesus, he said, a personal relationship with Jesus is the only thing that matters and that will bring fulfillment in your life. And I hope that you and I today have discovered that truth. I hope that we have room in our heart for Jesus. Nothing else will bring fulfillment except him. Let me read to you verses 8 and 9 from Luke chapter 2. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. I find it interesting that the angels first appeared to shepherds to tell the good news of Jesus' birth. Maybe you remember from years past, I've actually shared with you the story of the shepherds in India. One of the missions that we support, Central India Christian Mission, has found an open door to reaching out to the shepherds in their country. The shepherds are from the lowest caste of people there in India. And they feel lower than dirt. They are treated like dirt by those in the caste above them. But some Christians from Central India Christian Mission began to form a relationship with some of these shepherds. They began to share with them the good news of Jesus and how God the Father loves shepherds. It was to the shepherds that God came first to give the birth or give the news of his son's birth. It was the shepherds who were the first to hear the angel choir sing. It was the shepherds who were privileged to go first and see the baby Jesus. It was the shepherds who had the opportunity to leave there and go and tell the good news of the Savior who had been born. God loves shepherds. That was the message given to these folks in India. I asked Ajay this last week in an email to give me an update on their outreach to the shepherds. He wrote back to me and said, to to this point, they have baptized 5,000 shepherds and that the door is opening wide. I have a couple of pictures that Ajay sent to me. This is Abhijit Lal, actually. You remember Abhijit was with us this last summer. And he is speaking to a church full of people from this shepherd caste. And and I I see they're, they're sitting on the floor. 
They're sitting shoulder to shoulder. They're up the steps. They're, they're, they're just everywhere in this building, cram-packed, anxious to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a second picture, and this is Abhijit right there in the middle. And, and just the young people, anxious to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Ajay said 150 million people in India are from the shepherd class, totaling 14% of the total population. And the door is open wide for them to hear the message of Jesus Christ. I am so glad that God is one who loves shepherds, aren't you? He loves people in the low caste. He loves those who are in the upper caste. He loves all people. And verses 10 and following record for us what the angel had to say to the shepherds. Let me read verses 10 and 11. And we actually looked at this verse earlier in the the congregational reading of Scripture. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Take note of what the angel is saying here in this passage to the shepherds. He's saying, I have good news for you. This is the best news ever. It will bring great joy to you. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Wow! The Messiah has finally come. The long-awaited one. The anointed one. He has arrived and he is right here in Bethlehem. Verses 12 through 14. The angels continue. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Don't you know those shepherds were just overwhelmed by this experience and they were motivated to go and see verses 15 and 16 when the angels had gone away from them into heaven the shepherds began saying to one another let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. And we're not really told of what their response was at this moment. But I would almost bet that it is a very similar response as what we see of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. Where it says when they came before Jesus, they fell down and they worshipped him. They gave him their adoration. And I bet they had a few things to tell Mary and Joseph, don't you think? About what they had experienced out there on the hillside. Indeed, this was a very special baby. Let me read to you verses 17 through 20. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. 
Brothers and sisters, the message is worth telling. It's not something that we should keep quiet about. As the shepherds went away, they were spreading the good news. They were telling the story about the angels. They were telling the story about the baby in the manger. They were doing what the Christmas song says. Go, tell it on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere. Go, tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born. The truth of the message compels us to go and tell the message. Isn't it crazy? We tend to think that a person who goes around telling everybody about Jesus and talking about Jesus is a fanatic. And we might even say, that's weird. That's over the top. No, it's not. What's weird is that we wouldn't tell the world about Jesus. That's what you do with good news. You tell it. You shout it. You spread it. And that's exactly what the angel or what the shepherds were doing. They were telling everyone what they had seen and heard. Now, for just a few moments, let me draw three lessons from this text. And the first lesson is this. Jesus is the only Savior. And that shouldn't be new news to us here, but it certainly is news that the world needs to hear. The world believes that there are many saviors. The world believes that there are many pathways that would lead towards heaven. And I want you to know that is a lie concocted by the devil. There is only one savior who is Christ the Lord. There's only one pathway to heaven. And that is through Jesus. And that is the message that Jesus preached. That is the message that Peter preached. That is the message that we must preach as well. It doesn't matter whether it's an unpopular message. It's the truth and it must be preached. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I wonder, is there, is there anyone here this morning that has never accepted Jesus as Savior? Anyone here that has never bowed their knee to Jesus and their heart to Him? If you think you're going to get to heaven without Jesus, you are mistaken. You will not get there by being a good person. You can't get there by being smart or by being pretty or by being tough. You get to heaven only by one way, and that is through a complete surrender personally to Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. And that was the message of the angels. To the shepherds. A Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Let me give to you a second lesson from what the angels said to the shepherds. He not only is Savior, but He is also Lord. 
Let me quote to you from Kenny Bowles about the word Lord. Kenny Bowles is a professor at Ozark who teaches the Greek language. Of course, the, the Greek language is the original language of the New Testament. And this is what he says. The full force of Lord, or kurios, that's the Greek word for Lord, is not appreciated by English-speaking people. Perhaps if we trace the word through its history and development, it will help. This word came a long way before it was ready to serve as a fitting title for our Jesus. The Kyrios was originally the owner of a piece of property. Next, the Kyrios was the owner and master of a slave. Then, when the Greek mystery religions began to develop, Kyrios was used in reference to the deity they worshipped. So, by this point in history, then, the Kyrios was recognized as owner, obeyed as master, and honored as God. He continues to write, What happened next had tremendous impact on the word. When the translators of the Old Testament tried to translate the divine name Yahweh or Jehovah into Greek, they faced a problem. No one knew how to pronounce the sacred name since the vowels were omitted. I'll, I'll just interject here so that you'll understand what he's saying. In, in the Hebrew language, the original language of the Old Testament... The writers felt that the name of God was so sacred that they were even hesitant to say His name, Yahweh. And so as they wrote His name in the, in the Old Testament Scriptures, they didn't write it out completely with the vowels. They left the vowels out. And so Yahweh, we spell it Y-A-W-A-H. They leave the A's out, and, and his name is spelled in the original language, Y-H-W-H. Well, how in the world do you pronounce that? Y-H-W-H. And so they're trying to translate this name into the Greek language. They cannot just transliterate the, the, the word. In other words, they can't take letter, bar, letter for letter from Hebrew into Greek. And so they come up with a different name for God from what is in the original language in the Old Testament. Instead of Yahweh, they come up with this word, Kyrios, Lord, which was a very familiar name or word to everyone. And so they began to apply Kyrios to the name of God. And thus, every time a Jew saw the title Kyrios, he thought of God himself, says Kenny Bowles. He continues, in light of all this, just think what a momentous confession it is to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. We proclaim Him our owner and master to obey. We proclaim Him our God to worship. He's not just a good man to admire. He is the King of kings. He is incarnate God. He is Lord. Is He your Lord? Are you completely surrendered to Him? Understanding that He owns you, you are His, 
and we are to obey him. He is Savior, Jesus is, and he is Lord. And thirdly, he is our source of peace. And boy, in light of what has happened this last Friday, we need this. Our whole country needs this message. Jesus is our source of peace. There is no other way to have peace. The NIV translates verse 14 of Luke 2 this way, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. He is the pathway to peace. Isaiah called him the Prince of Peace. And Jesus himself said this in John 14, 27. I'll quote from the New Living Translation. He says, I am leaving you with a gift. Peace of heart and mind. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. That's Jesus talking. He says, I have a gift I want to give to you. It's peace of of mind and peace of heart. And you will not find this gift anywhere else in the world. It's a gift that can come only from me, Jesus says. And we pray, we pray for those folks in Connecticut and we pray for our country as a whole who desperately needs peace and I'm sure we need peace a lot of us have shed tears as we have watched the news and we have seen the hurt and we can't even as Tim said earlier we can't even begin to imagine what those people are feeling. But we know that Jesus spoke the truth as he said, I have a gift I want to give to you and it's peace. And we have troubles of our own. Here the last month, it seems my family, just personally, we've experienced a lot of a lot of worry, a lot of, a lot of things just to be anxious about. And we need his peace. In the middle of the night as I wake up, and I, I need his peace. Maybe you do too. We would be fools not to accept his peace. Let's pray together. Father, help us to have your peace through your son, Jesus. And we can't have that peace if we don't have him as Savior and Lord. So please, God, if there's even one person here without the Savior, 
they would realize the, the critical moment that it is that they have an opportunity today to say yes to the Savior. And we are not assured of anything beyond this moment. And for folks to come here week after week after week and not say yes to Jesus, it's just mind-boggling to me. Thank you for those many who have said yes to him already. Help us to understand more and more what it means to have him as Lord. In Jesus' name.